The first song we'll do today is um, what used to be called Truth Can Never Die and is now called Go On Alone. And the second song is I Live Without Fear.
tempest, through snows, through turbulent tide. The touch of your hand is my strength and my guide. I ask for no riches that death can destroy. I crave only thee, your love and your joy. I ask for no riches that death can destroy. I crave So good morning and welcome to Wednesday of Spiritual Renewal Week 2013 at Ananda Village. We're very happy to have all of you here. As you see, our teachers have multiplied here. We have eight of us who will be speaking on a panel this morning, about ten minutes each. And our wonderful topic is Lessons from the Life of Swami Kriyananda. I'm not going to introduce all of these folks. I'll let them introduce themselves. That would take too much time to go through all of that. But we'll have each one come forth. We'll give a break in the middle, as we usually do, to let you stretch. But we've got a lot of great souls up here, so put on your seat belts and get ready. <laughs> I'm going first because I am the sort of table of contents for the rest of the speakers today. And I'm going to share some stories of Swamiji. I was thinking this morning how we probably all remember very well the first time that we met Swamiji, whether it was in person, on a video, online, hearing his music, it has probably stayed with us, certainly has with me. And one of the first times I actually had a conversation with Swamiji was in 1974, and I was walking down Tylerfoot Road coming to the village from the what we called the old retreat at that time. And uh, this car stopped, this little green VW bug. And Swamiji asked me if I'd like to get in and have a ride to the village. So I got in and I was immediately struck by the complete joy that he had. You could already feel the enthusiasm he had for what Ananda would be someday. And, but also this deep sense of inner strength and knowing just who he was. Swamiji was always fresh. You never really knew how he was going to respond to any situation. It was always the person he was dealing with, the situation at the time, how it would affect others. And so I want to tell some stories around Swamiji's teaching and how I call how to learn to, be, learn to behave. 
Um, most of these are about me. He had a lot to work with. So the first thing I want to share is we were at a community called Ocean Song in the early 80s, and we were sitting around a big table in the dining room, and Swamiji was talking about all the visions he had for Ocean Song, and I was sort of muttering on the side. I think I was sitting next to him. And I said something like, oh, I wish I was that creative. He turns around and says to me, you are creative. And from that moment, that seed was planted. And it wasn't just for me. It was like what everyone was talking about this week already. That absolute conviction that if you know who you are and what you can do, you can do anything with Master. Don't limit yourself to small thinking. Another time I was driving Swamiji to town, it was during the lawsuit era of Ananda, and he, we were chatting and then he said, would you like to have some coffee? And I said, sure, Swami. He said, where would you like to go? And I said, anywhere but blank, this particular coffee shop. And he said, uh, why? Wouldn't you want to go there? And I said, well, you know, they're sort of against Ananda. They don't speak very highly of you. And I just don't like to be around them. Next thing I knew, we were pulled right up, <laughs> right up in front of that coffee shop. And Swami says, come on, Durga, let's go. And it was a time in my life I needed to have the courage of my convictions. And it was just a little thing. But it was very, very important to my life from then on, to stand up for what you believe. Don't let other people sway you. If you know what, if it's right, then just do it. Go on alone, exactly what they were sing, singing. I had an experience of Swamiji, another one during the lawsuits, when the legal team was driving back and forth to Ananda Village down to Ashin David's house where we would live for that week, and we would go every weekend. And... Um, this was going to be, for Swamiji, one of the most difficult times of the lawsuit. It was a particularly very difficult day, and we were all had been talking about it. And then Swamiji just said very quietly, good night. He went upstairs to meditate. Later, he told us he had been meditating all night long. And at the time, I felt like this was a little bit like Swamiji's Gethsemane. It was the time I knew he was meditating as deeply as he ever had, calling on Master, calling on the Guru, what do you want for me? Because I will do whatever it is, no matter how hard. And when he came down the next morning, I was thinking of what Jyotish and others were saying about his stance. And he didn't come down with, oh gosh, it's going to be a hard day. Never like that. He was okay. And he said goodbye to those of us who were there. He said, wish me luck. And off he went with the couple people that were going to accompany him that day with that amazing stance that he had. His heart open. His just energy was like, okay, I'm here. Give it to me. I'm ready. And I'm ready with joy. I'm ready with acceptance because my guru has asked this of me. It was beautiful. Another time, as I said, Swami was always fresh. And one time I said, Swamiji, I'm having a really hard time meditating. And I thought maybe he would give me advice, you know, just, you know, do Hong Sa a little bit differently. Maybe you're not sitting right, whatever it was. But you know what he said to me? I am too, Durga was so sweet. That kindness, that compassion, that complete understanding of where we were coming from. 
And then, of course, that night I went home and meditated for Swami. <laughs> and it was that point that just took me to be able to meditate deeper and deeper because he was there supporting, supporting me. Another time, a friend of mine was coming up from the Crystal Hermitage, and he said, boy, did I just learn a good lesson. I said, what? And he said, well, I went down to Swami's apartment, and I was complaining about one of my colleagues. And, you know, he wasn't getting to work on time, and he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. And he said, Swami just sort of looked at me, and then he picked up the phone, and he called this colleague. And he said, I just want to thank you for all that you're doing for Ananda, for Swamiji, for Master, and said a few more words, hung up the phone, and just looked at this man, and that was it. No words at all. So dear. Many of you have uh, led uh, events at Ananda, and there was a time in my life when I was responsible for a lot of the events that took place here, and it was Swamiji's birthday. And, uh, of course, as I'm sure all of you would feel, a tremendous responsibility to making it as beautiful as you possibly could. The long nights, the, the uh, brainstorming with your staff, the ideas that come up. And as it got closer, it started to rain. And uh, I went to Swamiji on Friday. This was a Saturday. I said, Swamiji, what if it rains tomorrow? Because everything was outside at the Hermitage. She said, oh, don't worry about that. It never rains on my birthday. And sure enough, the next morning, the sun shone. It was a beautiful experience. But what I really wanted to say is as I was coming out of the dining room, out the double doors into the yard, Swamiji came in from the kitchen. And I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but there was a thought in my mind, oh, he's going to tell me how nice it is. <laughs> he's going to say thank you. He's gonna, I was just sort of waiting. I wasn't like I thought about it. No, he just looked at me with so much compassion, so much, a little bit of sadness. And I knew immediately that he was saying, Nishkam Karma Turga, give it to God. He is who you're doing this for. Don't think of yourself, just give it freely. And he will bless your life like you cannot believe. I want to end with... One last very sweet story that many of you have heard, but it's always helped me tremendously. I was working at the village office, in the old office, and I was, you know, papers around, phone was ringing. I picked up the phone, phone rang, I picked up the phone, Durga, the other end of the line, Swami. <laughs> I never answered the phone like that again. What a lesson. This man, very few words he needs. But you know, he gave you those little lessons when you were able, as Shivani and others were talking about yesterday, when you could hear, when you knew, when he could look at you and you knew what he was saying. But otherwise, he was just supporting. And when he felt you were ready, he would give you that little boost to get you to the next step. I had no idea how this man was going to transform my life. And I had no idea where Ananda was going to be when I met him in 1974. But he brought us 
every day in little and big ways to the next step that we had in front of us. Uh, the most extraordinary man I have ever met. God bless. Good morning and welcome. I'm Naya Swami Lakshman. In 1990, Swamiji published the book, The Essence of Self-Realization. It was a turning point in his life and in Ananda's. Till then, he had deferred to Self-Realization Fellowship in every way that he could, doing his best to develop Ananda along lines that wouldn't compete with them. But now the time had come to present Master's teachings himself with full authority. This book included hundreds of previously unpublished sayings of Yogananda's, organized masterfully as a guide to the spiritual life. This was a book that carried spiritual authority. And Swamiji knew that SRF's response would be to redouble their efforts to discredit him. In fact, that was the year in which they initiated their lawsuit against us. Now, many of the readers of this book would be members of SRF, unaware that SRF had introduced a change in the spelling of Master's title, Paramahansa. And who would wonder when they read this book why Swamiji was using this to them unfamiliar spelling? So Swamiji included at the beginning of a book an editorial note to explain things. He had me proofreading in those days, and when I read that note, I could see immediately the need for it. And I also appreciated the spirit in which Swamiji had written it. But I was also sad at the thought that this great book would begin on a note that many people could be expected to interpret as sectarian. Hoping that Swamiji could find a way to rephrase, uh, rephrase his point, I brought it to his attention. <laughs> I was new at the time. <laughs> Swamiji reread very carefully all that he had written, paused, but not very long, and then with one stroke of his pen crossed out two or three of the paragraphs. It took a few moments for it to sink in on me just what it was he had done. And when it did sink in, it was so unexpected, so startling that it fairly took my breath away. For what he had done was remove all mention of the fact that his spelling had been the one that Master had used. The way the note now stood, it fairly invited anyone who read it to draw the conclusion that it was he, Swamiji, who had been unfaithful to Master's usage. There's a song the children, uh, a song of Swamiji's that the children sing here uh, to the accompaniment of enthusiastic gestures. One line of it goes, tall trees fall aside, every bramble I slash with the sword of freedom. When Swamiji cut out those paragraphs with a stroke of that pen, it was with that sword. Swamiji uh, exemplified every virtue under the sun. You know, all of us, I think, could have chosen among many stories to tell today. And uh, I chose, the, I, I was uh, magnetized to choose this one for several reasons. One is that it, 
it so much exemplifies especially who Swamiji always was. He was so dramatically free-spirited in everything he did. Very often he shocked us. Uh, in the world, shocking behavior is typically inappropriate behavior. Uh, <laughs> but w w with Swamiji, it was exactly the opposite. What was so striking about it was how, it, how very appropriate it was and how very natural, if you could only put yourself on the level of consciousness uh, that he had exhibited at that time. Another reason I like this subject is because of something Swamiji once told us about an, uh, an exchange he and Swamiji had had about Master's, uh, well, about master's incarnation as William the Conqueror. Uh, William, uh, that, that incarnation took place during very dark times. And William often needed to act outwardly with great force and vigor. Those were hard times, and he needed to be tough. Swamiji had trouble squaring this picture of William with what he knew of Master. And so he asked Master one day, in that incarnation as William, were you always in Samadhi? Master gave a very interesting answer. He replied, you never lose your sense of inner freedom. And for myself at least, I drew the conclusion from that, that inner freedom is even uh, stands even higher as a criterion of spiritual realization than bliss. One of Swamiji's last, uh, last and most precious gifts to us uh, was the Nayaswami order that he founded four years ago and the book that he wrote about it, um, A Renunciate Order for the New Age. Swamiji wrote something very interesting there. The goal of the spiritual path is transcendence of the ego and union with God. But in the past, in Kali Yuga, it wasn't possible for people to directly confront the ego in that, in that attempt. Uh, the methods, because they didn't understand what the ego was, the methods that were available to them were indirect, non-attachment, uh, strict non-involvement in uh, the material world. But now we live in a time when matter is understood to be a, uh, a, a temporary phenomenon. And in this time, it's possible to imagine that the ego, too, is, doesn't exist except as an expression of a more fundamental reality. And so it becomes thinkable for the devotee to do battle directly with the ego. This is the, was the overarching message, both of the book and of the order itself. The true freedom is more possible now than it has ever been before in this uh, ascending world cycle and available to many more people than ever before. The book is filled with many specific practical examples of how to fight that battle. It's not an exaggeration to say that Swamiji was brought back from the grave in order to bring this to us, uh, as, you can, uh, as you can discover if you read the preface to that book. Well, I think I have time for one more story. Um, 
This is a story about Swamiji's frequent flyer miles. <laughs> One of my jobs working for him was to book, make his travel arrangements. And as we all know, he did a lot of flying. Um, um, often those were international flights. In the, in, in the last years especially, his body was much frailer than it had been in the past. Most of these flights needed to be in business class. And Swamiji's schedule was ever new, and so often <laughs> those, you know, those flights needed to be either booked at the last minute or rebooked at the last minute. Uh, this is the kind of customer from whom the airlines make most of their money. <laughs> but, but of course, um, you know, money was not typically at Ananda, you know, overly flowing, and people hoped that I could keep the costs down as I could. And the main uh, avenue available to me that I could see was using frequent flyer miles, which turn out, to, if you can use them, to be especially valuable um, towards business class tickets. So as not to go too long, I'm going to abbreviate what was a very long story for me. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was very hard to use these things, you know. You would, you know, you would book it, and then Swamiji would change his, you know. So you would have to then cancel the flight, redeposit the miles, try and apply them towards the next flight. I remember one flight where the notes for those miles went on for pages, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> I succeeded once, maybe twice, just enough to get me to keep trying, but almost always it was futile. In fact, after I had uh, been there for some years, I happened upon a drawer in Swamiji's apartment that I'd never been in before, and I found a whole pile of expired frequent flyer miles from the 80s before I'd ever arrived. And I realized it was some consolation, at least I wasn't the only one who had, some, had, this, had this trouble. Anyway, um, to fast forward, we were in India, and Swamiji had accumulated 100,000 frequent flyer miles on one airline that were due soon to expire. And someone came forward and offered to buy them at a fair price. And I thought this was a great idea. You know, uh, you know, this was going to end this problem forever. And, uh, <laughs> and um, I should add that this was a time of particular financial stringency, both for Swamiji and for uh, the Sangha, who, who paid for many of Swamiji's flights. So I presented this, uh, you know, this opportunity to Swamiji enthusiastically. Uh, Swamiji replied in a tone of childlike, puzzled wonder, but what would I do with money? <laughs> <laughs> this was a great lesson for me. <laughs> the contrast between our, uh, our points of view was stark. <laughs> for 10 years, my state of consciousness had been one of battle, you know, with the airlines and with their crazy and constantly changing regulations. You know. Swamiji, on the other hand, saw everything that came to him as coming from God. And so he naturally wondered why it was that God had sent these things to him, and just what God had in mind. Uh, he asked me, uh, what could I do with these miles? Where could I fly on these miles? 
you know, he had no plans to go anywhere at the moment. <laughs> so I did, I did a little bit of research and I found that the best use of these miles was that we could get him on a first class flight to India. He said, wonderful, book me on that, and decided to go to India. Uh, you know, it, it turned out, you know, sometime later that it became uh, unfeasible to take that trip, so I redeposited the miles. <laughs> there, <laughs> there were now fewer of them left, and Swamiji asked me once again, well, where can I go on the miles that are left? And I did a little bit more research and found that he could go in business class to America. And so he had me book that. Um, it, once again, you know, it, it, it's something I'll never forget, you know, an attitude that, that came all too readily to me, you know, compared with Swamiji's, you know, trying only to figure out how best to accept this generous gift that his Divine Mother had given him. What, what freedom in that attitude. How much time have I got here? <laughs> Am I at 10 minutes? None. Okay. I, uh, that's fine. I did. But what I wanted to mention, had I had enough time, there was a song I was going to play for you. I, I was not going to sing it for you. Ken was going to play it for you. But it's a song you might like to listen to when you go home, because I think it, it exemplifies so beautifully the spirit in that story and the spirit that Swamiji uh, exemplified all the time of... Uh, just just lilting freedom and going through life dancing hand in hand with Divine Mother. And uh, that song is the song of Mary Magdalene. I almost feel obligated to stand up here and sing, I am thine, how are you? I wish we'd had time. I won't do it. <laughs> Uh, before I start, I, uh, Lakshman didn't toot his horn too much, but I just would wanted to thank him publicly for all the years he served as Swamiji's, not just secretary, but he's the one responsible for, I don't know how many books, they, they just wouldn't be without him. So Lakshman, thank you. Lakshman probably wouldn't want to tell me to tell this, but he called me this morning. He said, Savitri, I'm so nervous. I don't think I slept last night. I said, <laughs> I said Lakshman, just your, your presence will be enough. That's, that's all, all it takes. So this morning I picked out a couple of qualities of gifts that Swamiji gave me, lessons that I learned from him. And the words that I picked out were courage and encourage, words that are close to each other. And um, so I want to just tell a couple of stories, as we all have, of how I learned about how to have more courage from Swami and about his great ability to encourage people to take their next step, to move into places where they never thought they wanted to go and didn't think they could and so forth and so on. He was a, as he often told us, he said, I'm sitting on a volcano of creative energy that's always exploding. And he was suggesting that we live that way also. What an interesting way to think about it, to sit on a volcano of creative energy and don't just sit on it, let it come through you, let it flow through you. But first I'd like to start with a beautiful experience I had 
just uh, probably within 24 hours after Swami last left his body. I uh, was sitting at my computer receiving all the wonderful tributes that were coming in and trying to answer them and various things. It was a great honor and privilege for me to read what people were saying, but one very sweet one that came in very quickly. It's from a friend of mine who's here today. She's from Nashville, Tennessee. And she said these words, which really were so perfect for me. She said, I never knew I could love someone as much as I love Swamiji. And I thought, boy, that puts it, that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? I never knew I could love someone that much, but how could we love Swamiji that much unless he were loving us that much? And he became a channel, a floodgate of energy, of divine, unconditional love to each and every one of us. How could he do that? He just put himself aside and let it flow through him. And that is a major lesson for us to all learn, to put yourself aside and let the power of love flow through you without any attachment, without any condition at all. So the first story I would like to tell about courage happened in about 18, uh, 18, not 19, something about <laughs> another lifetime, 1989. Uh, 1989, Swami was asked to speak at a large metaphysical conference in Dallas, Texas. And because I had been traveling to Texas, helping our meditation groups get going there and so forth, I was asked to go along. And when he finished his big talk at this big conference in downtown Dallas, then uh, I was to announce that I would be going out giving classes in the area as kind of follow-up. We often did that sort of thing when Swami spoke. So um, much to my delight, I found out that that meant I also got to travel with Swami. I'd never done that before. And so I was told to be at Crystal Hermitage at 10 o'clock in the morning with bags in hand, and we would all get in the car and drive to the Sacramento airport. So I was there ready to go. And what to my surprise, I got in the car and Swami was driving. The car. He was going to be our driver, our designated driver. I thought, oh, how wonderful. Um, and he was, it was a white car, some of you remember, and he got in the front seat, and uh, I don't remember who was on the front seat, but there were th three of us in the back seat, and off we went to Sacramento. And as we were driving along the freeway, at one point I realized we were going pretty fast. <laughs> and I, I was seeing, we were passing cars, you know, and I, I thought, well, okay. And then I, I sort of surreptitiously looked over at the speedometer, and uh, we were going 85 miles an hour, <laughs> which has always been a little bit one of my phobias. I've had many, but that was one of, of going too fast, you know. And, and uh, you know how Swami is. He, was, he caught my thoughts instantly. And I, as I looked over at the speedometer, I noticed he was looking at me. <laughs> through the rearview mirror, and he gave me this big smile, and he said, Savitri, I can't help it, the car wants to go fast. <laughs> and I thought, wow, what, what am I afraid of? What if, what if we had a fiery crash right here? Yeah, I mean, the car was swallowing, well, let's all go out together, oh, how wonderful, you know? And I just released that fear. He, he was always so powerful in giving people Courage. I just don't know how he did that. Um, and he was also courageous enough to tell us when we were blowing it, you know, when we weren't um, doing the right thing. I remember one time, this was in the 80s, 
early 80s, I was at his home and he was speaking about I don't know what, and I'm not even sure what, how this came up. But at some point he just paused, and there in front of probably 20 or 30 people, he turned to me and he said, Savitri, you're too much of a laid-back Texan. And I said, I am? <laughs> and he said, Yes, and then he went on to talk about a whole bunch of other things, and I thought, what could that possibly mean? I, I, I mean, first of all, I was born in Tennessee. I lived in, <laughs> and I. <laughs> but he uh, he knew I had lived in Texas for 16 years before I moved here. As a matter of fact, that was why I was going to Texas because I spoke the language and people people could understand me and so forth. But um, that's all he said, so I thought, well, Swami has given me uh, words of power here. I need to listen to that, and, you know, obviously I've been too mellow, uh, and I thought, well, I, I don't want to be too mellow, and, and I want to be full of energy and all the things that we're taught on our path. So uh, the next time it was called upon me to give a talk, I just fairly ran up to the microphone and I just started, you know, and I was just, and I was just not going to be a laid-back Texan, you know. I just kind of just put forth power in every possible way that I could, and I and I realized at the end of the talk, people were sort of stunned into silence. And it was just like, what is this woman doing? And I, I realized I better find a middle ground here of some sort. But I'm grateful for that because I realized I did have an attitude that was ingrained in me from my southern upbringing of just wanting to sit on the porch and drink mint and juleps and, you know, not put out too much energy if I didn't have to because it was hot or whatever. You know? <laughs> so uh, he had that courage to tell us what we needed to hear at the time we needed to hear it. And then also he, he was so... Um, great at encouraging us. One day I was sitting in my office and Miriam, who was helping Lakshman a little bit and being Swami's secretary, called me up and said, Savitri, Swami wants to see you over at his house this afternoon. Can you come over? I said, me? And he said, yes. She said, yes. And I said, what does he want? Because <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm sort of not on the A team here. You know, I don't usually don't get a call from Swami. And I thought, I'll react, oh, what does he want? He's going to send me to India. What's he going to do? You know, <laughs> what, what's going to happen? So I finally just said, oh, Divine Mother, whatever he wants, it's, it's got to be fine. <laughs> whatever, it's fine. So I went in, he said, greetings, Savitri, how are you? And I said, fine. He just cut right to the chase. He said, have you ever thought of writing a novel? I said, <laughs> Uh, well, yes, actually I have, but, but he said, I think you should write one. And I said, me? And he said, yes, he said, you're a good writer, Savitri, you should write more, and, and, and there's not a novel, this was before he started writing his novels, there's not a novel out there right now with a real good spiritual basis to it. So I want you to think about it and come up with an outline and send it to me and all of this. And I, oh, yes, sir, okay. And I, I, then I went home and I was writing all this stuff down and I, I sent him an email and then he got back to me right away. This is great, go for it, go for it. And so for the next three and a half years, I labored away at this little novel. It's called Through Many Lives, if you want to read it. It's up in the boutique. And uh, uh, every time you saw me during that, 
Now, remember, Swami writes books in a week, you know, sometimes a day, and it took me like three and a half years, and it's not a very long book. But um, I was doing it nights and weekends just to give myself an excuse, which Swami didn't like to take excuses too much, but he was so encouraging. How many, how many chapters have you written? Let me read them, you know, just on and on. And um, I tell you this because I know that Swami had in his heart for each of us to do something new and challenging and different and something that perhaps no one else could do but you. And so what I want to close with is this. Swamiji is not with us in his body anymore. He's certainly with us in his spirit. But remember how much he encouraged us all, either as a group or as individuals, to take your next step, to do something creative, to do something new. It's up to us now to do that for each other to encourage each other, to be channels of divine love for each other, to live in complete lack of fear. I'm so glad they sang that song, I Will Live Without Fear. When I first heard that song, when Swami wrote it, he sang it for us. I thought, that's my song for the rest of my life. I've had so many fears about what I couldn't do and how I couldn't measure up. and just fears, you name fears, I've had them. And I said, you know, I don't have to live in fear. So I sang that song over and over and over every day, and I still do sing it so much to remind me to have courage, to face life as Swami did, chest out, heart first, and to encourage each other. Thank you. Hello, it's nice to be here with you all. My name is... Swami Daiva. I'm from Portland and Laurelwood. It's nice to be a part of this panel. It's fun to see just how different we all are and how deeply uh, Swami Kriyananda has touched so many of us. Yesterday Ananta and Gyandev spoke about um, how they came to the path a little bit and I came in somewhere between the two of them. I had the scientific inclinations that maybe were more in line with Gandev, but I had the rebellious nature that uh, would put me squarely in uh, Ananta's court. <coughs> and so it's perhaps not improper to start this talk about Swami Kriyananda with uh, a quote from John Lennon. It's apocryphal. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's certainly brilliant. It said that um, he was quoted as saying when he was five years old, his mother told him that the key to life was happiness. And then he went to school and was given an assignment. And the assignment was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he wrote down, happy. <laughs> and the teacher came back and said, you didn't understand the assignment. And he responded, you don't understand life. <laughs> I grew up under the, the um, parenting care of a woman who became Nayaswami Peggy and just recently passed. Um, she instinctively knew the things of this path and uh, raised us in accordance with those. So we kind of knew that happiness was a major part of the formula, but it was fairly unguided because how do you find happiness? And we grew up knowing what to look for but not knowing where to find it. And it was not until 1982 that we received the autobiography of a yogi. And I read it, and I reread it, and I took the lessons, and I reread it again. And I realized this is brilliant, but it's not enough. And then in 1983, I heard that there was a disciple of this great master 
who was going to be speaking, a direct disciple, who was going to be speaking in Sacramento. And I eagerly prepared to go and see this orange-robed Swami who would, you know, help me find out how to fulfill life. And I got there and he came out in long hair and a beard and a Hawaiian shirt and spent the hour and a half talking about Hawaii and God knows what else. And somewhere very early on, I tuned out. And I realized this was absolutely not it. And a while later, I read, uh, I read The Path. Um, it's a very short talk, so I won't tell that story, although it's fascinating how um, Ananda's giving that out uh, affected a lot of people, including mine. I grabbed it off the shelf. I had it from Earth Song. And I went, oh my God, so that's who this is. And I realized instantly that finding happiness, that the wholeness we're seeking, has nothing to do with how we look and how we dress and what we, what we do that is so far beyond um, the forms that you might expect would um, somebody who had that would hold. So in the, the second meeting I had with Swamiji was I came, it was right up here. We came to Sunday service at uh, uh, the Expanding Light. Uh, the World Brotherhood Retreat, and afterwards a woman came up to me and she said, it was the family, and she said, oh my gosh, it's so nice to meet you. We're having a pool party over at the Crystal Hermitage this afternoon, and you should come. It's for members. You should come. And then Swami walked up, and uh, orange robe this time, uh, and, he's, and she said, Swamiji, this is, and introduced us, and said, I've invited him to the party, and he looked at me, and he just said, I'm sorry. The party is for members. And I just felt my heart sink. I just, you know, everything went to my toe chakras. And then I thought, you know, these people have got their own life. And I just thought, I kind of choked on it, but I said, I can understand. And he looked at me and he said, well, in that case, you come. Receptivity, humility. Um, a while later, uh, we moved to Ananda Village, and I've been a part of Ananda. I've had the privilege, the remarkable privilege, to be a part of Ananda ever since. And it was there was only one Ananda at that time, and uh, Swami Kriyananda was um, available in ways that, um, again, were fairly remarkable. And so I had a chance to just watch him under uh, an extraordinary number of circumstances. And this is far less about the privilege to have, have had that window seat than it is what was found. Because there was an unending stream of exuberance and graciousness and, as they've spoken, inspiration and creativity and it just poured through him and bathed everyone. And it didn't seem to matter what was going on or what the challenges were. Um, helping this vibration come out of the ethers for the first time uh, was a Herculean task to help people who had no clue what was possible, not only find the inspiration to explore that, but have the courage to go through all the trials that made it possible for Anand to exist here and worldwide. And I watched that no matter what was going on, there was just never a change. And at one time early on in this, he made a, in my experience of this, he made, an, he made a remarkable statement. He said, 
I no longer have the capacity to tell the difference between where my thoughts end and Yogananda's thoughts begin. And I understood that what, what I was seeing was somebody who aspired moment by moment to never, never for a, a breath, never for a heartbeat, be out of tune with the vibration and the teachings and the consciousness that brought the joy that I'd first found in the autobiography of a yogi. Just not a moment. And I pondered that. And then, sometime later, I heard him say, I never let anything affect my consciousness. I never let anything affect my consciousness. And I thought about that, and I thought, well, uh, if I never let anything affect my consciousness, I'm in real trouble. Um, but I understood what he meant, was he had reached high enough that he could live inside the light that Master was trying to awaken for all of us, that experience, and that he was never, ever going to let anything diminish that experience. Um, Yogananda says that happiness, to be happy is to be in tune with God. And the power to be happy comes through meditation. And so I was working very hard on my meditations and I'd just come out of a long uh, and deep and profound meditation with a friend of mine. And I was just feeling the bliss and the joy of divine communion. And some short period later, I made a comment. And my friend looked at me and he said, let the whining begin. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought about it, and you know, we talked about it because he helps a lot of people. And we just talked about the fact that almost everything that comes out of our mouths is something less than a reflection of the consciousness that we touch in meditation that Swami lived in. And that it's the whining, it's the carping. And they've, they've mentioned a couple of times that um, Swami just assumed that everything came from God. If everything comes from God, the easy things, the hard things, the beautiful things, the difficult things, if everything is a gift to you from God, to us from God, what is there to whine about? It's always an opportunity to just put out more energy. And I just felt this, this has been one of the central aspects of my spiritual path, is I never, you know, how do you reach that point where you never feel the separation? And then how do you keep anything from affecting that consciousness? And I read, just in thinking about this, I read from the Bhagavad Gita, and this litany comes out several times through the writing. This is Yogananda's writing of it, as Swami put out. But it's a description of Swami Kriyananda, and I'm out of time, so I won't read much of it. But it's in chapter 12. He who bears no ill will toward anyone, who is kind and friendly to all, who has no consciousness of I and mine, even minded during pain and pleasure, forgiving toward all, inwardly contented, steadfast in his yoga meditation practices, and self-controlled, who tries faithfully through practice to unite his soul to me, is firm in determination, and whose mind and discrimination are surrendered unto me, filled with devotion, pursuing the deathless dharma I have described, ever engrossed in me, are above all dear to me. Hi everyone, my name is Hridaya. It's a real blessing for me to be here with you today, and I think it's time for a little stretch. If everybody wants to get up, stretch in your own way.
I hope that this minute doesn't count off my 10 minutes. <laughs> what I'd like to speak to you today, a quality of Swami, patience and timing. Um, a little while ago, I was reading a book to my four-and-a-half-year-old grandchild, and in the book came up the quality of patience. And I said, now, um, do you understand what patience is? He looked at me like, where have you been? He said, yeah. He says, patience is when you want something really bad. You can't have it when you want it. You have to wait, and it's really hard. <laughs> I said, okay. Okay, that's pretty good for four-and-a-half years old. But in talking about patience today, I want to talk a little bit more, a little more in depth. And I think the kind of patience that Swami had, I would like to call super conscious patience. Um, he was not <coughs> long suffering. He had energy, joy, and was sitting on a volcano of creativity. And when you think of the patience of Job and, you know, being able to take yet one more pestilence coming down on your head, or one more tragedy, that you had to deal with. That wasn't how Swami dealt with it. It was just like, okay, now what do we do? Let's stand up, let's find a solution. Now what do we do? Um, so, but along with that, he had this sense, as Joe Tish talked the other day, of this impeccable timing when it come, came to being patients, patient. And I want to relate a story that touched me on a deep level concerning this quality of impeccable patience. Um, I'm going to go back in time. December 1977, and I had been at Ananda for a couple of years, and I was married to my first husband at the time. And um, he was, at that time, going through a time of questioning in his life. And he had come to Ananda through SRF, and he felt a deep loyalty to Diamata, but he had come to Swami. He loved Swami. But there was this constant questioning going on. Where should I really be? You know, what, what's my real dharma? Well, I didn't have that questioning. I came to Swami. I came to Master through Swami. But I did feel karmically loyal to him. And I was also three months pregnant at the time with my first child. So it sort of escalated and escalated. Finally, it came to a point where I just knew that you know, he had to make some kind of a change. And so we came up with this plan. It's embarrassing to talk about it now because it was a crazy plan. And um, I'm looking back at Ananta because he knows everything. Um, <laughs> So back in the back in the day, you know, we didn't we didn't go to Jyotish and Davy and say, "This is what we'd like to do." You know, we'd like to go down to Encinitas for a while and just test it out down there and see how Master comes to us through through SRF. Um, or maybe we might want to get together with a couple of friends we know who are devotees of Master and start a little community. We didn't do that. We didn't talk to Swami. We didn't talk to the semblance of a membership committee that existed at the time. We left in the middle of the night. <laughs> ah, that's the really embarrassing part. And the one, the one person who knew our every move was Anata. He was our confidant. And through this whole odyssey, epic story, um, that lasted about four months, he always knew where we were. And he always made some kind of contact with him, with us. So we started out, we went to Encinitas, and I just have to say, that was not my place. I already knew it wasn't my place. 
I want to be nice, but I don't want someone to tell me how to sit in the pew at Sunday service. I can do that on my own. I don't, I can't exist within these, within these rules. So, you know, also I was pregnant and I was, you know, seeing, I would, every place we'd go, I'd see another midwife. So we started in Encinitas. Um, you know, we stayed with some friends um, who had been at Ananda who said, oh, come down, there's landscaping jobs here, you know, this is going to be great. Well, you know, the jobs fell through, you know, one after the other. I didn't really like the midwife. Um, so it was like, okay, all right, this is not our place. So temporarily we moved to my in-law's house in Santa Barbara, which was a lovely place, a nice respite for me, uh, very kind, nice people, and my husband worked for his family. So that was nice. Okay, during this time, what happens but the Joy Tours of 1970, I guess it was 78 by then, first part of the year, came through and they were going to Santa Barbara. I'm going, oh, the Swami's coming, Hananda people are coming. And the little angel on my set, on this shoulder says, yippee! And the little devil on this side says, ha! They're not going to like you anymore. You have displeased them. This is not going to be any good. I don't think you want to go. But of course this angel won out because that's where my heart was. So <laughs> we go to this talk, Swami gives a talk. Everyone is, of course, open, loving. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, yeah, well, you know, we're, we're just here staying in Santa Barbara right now. Well, through this strange karmic circumstance, Swami ended up coming and spending the night at my in-law's house with us. <laughs> He was an absolutely delightful guest in every way. He just charmed my mother-in-law. He signed the path for her. He energized in front of everyone in the most open and delightful way. And he, he talked to us, but, you know, he didn't talk to us really about what we were doing until kind of just as he was going. And he said, oh, well, what are you doing now? And we said, well, you know, it didn't work out in Encinitas. He goes, mm-hmm. Um, and now we're headed to um, Oregon. We have some devotee friends there, and they have land, and we're going to see um, if we can start a little community with them. And he didn't say, hey, look, you're pregnant. And he didn't say, do you, do you have a job? He said, oh, very much sweetly in the spine. That sounds nice. And he left. So then the odyssey continued. I went to Oregon. That didn't work out. Funny how that didn't work out. Um, then we ended up eventually to in the more, I think the most northern part of the west coast of Port Townsend, Washington, with two other devotee friends of ours. It was raining, raining, raining. I was getting bigger. I still didn't like the midwife at this place. And my husband had no job. I mean, he was a landscaper, and this is rain in Washington in the early spring. It's March now. And I think I was getting pretty depressed at the time. That's what I think. And he was, my heart hurt because I needed to go home. His um, feeling of self-worth was going down the tubes because he couldn't get a job. We were going down. And I remember um, we lived in this nice house and the telephone in the house happened to be in the outhouse because <laughs> it's not cool to have a telephone in your house if you want peace and quiet. You know, that is for the outhouse. So it never rang anyway. 
<laughs> Nobody called up and said, hey, I got a job for you. Um, no. So I took to sort of hanging out in the kitchen so I could hear. The t it was close to the outhouse so I could hear if the, if the telephone was going to ring, I was going to get it. So one day at this real low point, it was raining. I had a cough that I couldn't get rid of and the phone rang and I, I heard it and I busted out there and I ran through and my husband followed me and we were standing in the outhouse and I pick up the phone and I go, hello? And this voice comes over, the sweet, humble voice of Ananta. And he says, hello, this is Ananta. I go, oh, hi Ananta. He goes, and this is, has to be worded exactly how he said it. He said, Swami asked me to call you and say, are you ready to come home now? <laughs> and I said, yes! <laughs> and then I, then I oh, remembered, oh yeah, there's someone else in this, in this mix. And I looked over to my husband, I go, he says, Swami says, are we ready to come home? He goes, yes! And I remember at that time, I think I fell to my knees in that outhouse. And I was, I couldn't believe it. And, oh, and I forgot to say, and Ananta just said, oh, good, good, I'll see you soon. I'll tell Swami. He hangs up. And I'm thinking, how did he know? How did he know? A few days before, we were probably still wanting to put out some energy to somehow make this work. A few days after, we were going down the tubes. He knew. And then I said to myself, why did he do this? Well, he loves me. I belong to him. I belong to Master through him. You know, I have, I have him in my DNA, and I have no choice but to be where he is. And he has no choice but to help me come home. So we go home, and that was not the end of the adventure. We had a, I forgot to tell you that we went off in a 1953 vintage blue Chevrolet truck that a friend had rebuilt the en engine in on the way home. <laughs> on the way home, the radiator blew and the engine blew. Um, but that's okay. I didn't care. I'm coming home. And we come home on April Fool's Day. <laughs> April Fool's Day, walking in the community. And still I have that little, that little devil on this side saying, ha. They're going to say, what, what happened to you? What the hell did you go out there for? But then the angel said, no, they're not. Krishna's soldiers are just like Krishna. And it was the prodigal son coming home. It was the fatted calf and the rings on the fingers. And you need a job. Well, come back to the garden with Ananta. You need a place to live here. You live over here. Hey, there's the midwife that works for me. And so... I was home, and I knew at that point, that was it. I don't care how many more babies I have. I don't care how many more husbands I have. I don't care <laughs> what I have to go through. I'm here. I'm here. And so to carry this thought just a little bit further about these qualities of Swami and the sense of timing and getting things right, I can't tell you how many times I've blown that since that time. But, you know, he holds it out there. It's not okay to say Swami's awesome. He has this quality of timing. He has this incredible intuition. 
No, he's, he's standing over us and he's saying, do it. You have that power of intuition. You can do that right timing. And like I say, I've, I've learned it many times. I know we all have. But if every once in a while, we get it, right? We have to. We have to. Because this is the law of averages. If we're doing <laughs> what we're supposed to do, we get it sometimes. And we get that absolute thrill in the heart that it's not us, it's not me that did something right. It's Divine Mother. We've, we've opened the channel for a minute and Divine Mother rushes in and she says the right thing and she says it at the right time. And it's just thrilling. And we say thank you to Swami for that. And after that moment comes, then there's Master. He's got a broom. He hands it to Swami. Swami hands that broom to us and he says, sweep my ashram porch. So we continue the work. Good, good morning, everyone. I'm Naya Swami Krishnadas. So my topic today is prayer and calling on the guru. And after all these great speakers, I uh, hope I can just touch you in some way of Swamiji's love and joy and grace that he brought into this world and infused in all of us. In, when I met Swamiji, I just knew that I had met uh, a man of God and a man of peace. And I would close my eyes that first lecture in, uh, in Houston uh, on that 1978 Joy Tour. And I thought, I will follow this man anywhere. And I didn't know about Yogananda at the time. And I didn't know that he had started a community. I didn't know anything about him. I just went that night out of curiosity to, to meet a real live Swami and there he was. I, I happened to be able to sit right in the front row, right in front of him and he just bowled me over. It was his heart. It was the love that he was able to transmit through his consciousness, through, through his voice. The singing, the lecture, everything just in, imbued that love. So I thought, I'll follow this man anywhere and I'll trust him with anything, anything he would tell me to do. And sometimes it, it hasn't been easy. Uh, he's loving and sometimes he's strong. This story is in the early 1980s. Uh, Ananda owned and operated a uh, natural food store and cafe in Nevada City called Earthsong. And uh, many people kind of came through there working their ceviche, managed the kitchen for a while, Diva, two of the people right on the stage, including me. And uh, and Savitri did leave her mark. She brought to the to the cafe her bean sauce recipe from from Texas. <laughs> and she became known as the Bean Queen. <laughs> It's a little-known fact. We need to bring these things forward for the for those of you that haven't, you know, don't know these things. But anyway, um, the, one of the marks of Swami's life, as you know, is just his unbridled enthusiasm. You know, Ananta said the disgustingly enthusiastic. He was capital D, capital E. Everything was enthusiastic uh, for him, and he would come. He loved having Earth Song because it was a way for us in those days to 
you know, give our vibration through service to the uh, local community. And many people didn't come out here and they only heard false rumors about what we were, sort of a cult. And there people could come in and they would experience our vibration and say, wow, these people are, these people are nice. Um, but they're so nice. You know, why the but? Because uh, they heard strange things. And, but through our service, they felt our consciousness. They felt our joy. And it was magnetic. So at that time... Uh, the store suffered a fire and just ravaged the whole place. Everything in it had to be thrown out. And uh, that was a tragedy because there was a lot of good things in there. And the dumpster divers had a field day. And so even our regular customers were out there sort of foraging, <laughs> getting all these good, good products. But that wasn't a problem because we had insurance. We had insurance that was gonna would be able to restock the place, um, but when we so we were closed down a little too long, three months, and uh, you know people had to go elsewhere and get their groceries and also find places to where they could they could eat. So that was a little too long. But then when it came time to open up and we were going to restock the place, all of our distributors let us know that we had owed them lots of back. Uh, invoices and we used the insurance money for that and didn't have any money to restock the place so there is a you know a marketing principle that the store should look abundant but it looked a little bit like the depression in those days there was there was you know <laughs> Riemann's laughing because he was sort of an accountant in those days we had two things on the shelf people would come in and it looked depressing they could still make it into the cafe because we still could cook but uh, the place had a pall over it. It was, it was terrible. Well, I had become the manager shortly after that. So after work, I would make my way to, the, to Swami's house, the dome. It wasn't the hermitage in those days. And I, I would maybe uh, go for dinner or come for, to help with dishes after dinner. Because I had been his uh, recording engineer. And uh, so I still sort of had a place at the table. I would uh, make my way over there. And uh, one evening, everyone else had gone, and we were in the kitchen, and there was like a, it was, it's where the, the upper tier, where the baby grand piano is now at the Hermitage, and there was a railing kind of in an L shape, and I was leaning up against one side, and he was leaning up against the other, and uh, I was sharing with him the latest challenges of Earth Song, because like I said, he really loved to come in there, and uh, you know, he was enthusiastic about everything. He, he gave us a, an egg salad recipe of his, you know, and every time he'd come, he'd go, where's the egg salad? You know, why don't we have that out? You know, he was enthusiastic about everything, you know, <laughs> so we'd have, you know, we had that as one of our products. So, uh, but anyway, we're leaning there up against the railing, and we're talking, it's very close quarters, and I'm sharing with him, like I said, the latest challenges, and I, he could feel my consciousness kind of moaning and groaning about what was, you know, going on there, and uh, so he looks me in the eyes, and he says, do you pray? And I sort of, you know, he, that got my, my attention. It stopped my thoughts. And uh, so I started thinking. And these, you know, thoughts are very lightning quick. So I thought, hmm, do I pray? And, um, hmm, do I pray? Well, I think I pray. And then there was a sort of certainty and then doubt. And I thought, well, I don't know if I pray like Swami prays, you know. Yes, I pray. 
but do I pray pray, you know? <laughs> so this is what I was going on in my mind. And, uh, and the other thing was I was, you know, it was a very small space in those days and, and the door was just about 10 paces, be, you know, behind him. And I'm thinking if I could kind of get by him <laughs> and head out the door, you know? <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, this is ludicrous. You know, I, I can't, someone, I can't breeze by Swami and kind of, you know, it's getting late. I, I really should be going. Or, uh, you know, can we talk about this in the morning? You don't do that to Swami. So he's, he's locked. I mean, we're locked. He has my attention. So when my words finally, you know, my mouth finally kind of form the words feebly, I, I pray. He shot back, you need to pray. You need to pray to Master. You know, and he, he just kind of electrified my consciousness. So uh, I, I left the hermitage, you know, sort of. Swami had a way of sort of inserting in some, something into your consciousness, subtly or not so subtly in that case, where it was kind of like either the subtle would be like a time-release capsule. You know, it would, it would get in your consciousness and it would start vibrating. You know, start, you'd start thinking about it. You'd start meditating on it. And he was affecting a change. And he, he could read your, your thoughts. He could read your consciousness. And he, you know, he, he knew what to do and when to do it, the timing and, and so on. Uh, and at other times, it would be like, you know, a bomb, forcefully. He'd, he'd toss it in there and let it just do its work and break these habits and these tendencies that needed to be dealt with. So I left the hermitage, and I sort of marched home, you know, I'm thinking about this. And uh, in another talk, I shared how the, the path from my cabin to Swami's, I called it the yellow brick road. You know, because whenever I would go down there to record him, I think, I'm going to see my Swami. You know, he's like a wizard. Magic happened around him. Well, that night, it wasn't yellow. It was black. It wasn't just because it was dark. I was in a mood. I, I, I got into a mood. So I go back to my cabin, and, uh, and it was late. And I thought, when it was late and, and dark and cold, and, you know, I didn't start a fire because in the in the in the wood wood stove because it would you know really I'm gonna be going to bed soon anyway. But I would get my sleeping bag and go under under it and do some yoga postures. And I gotta talk to Gyandev about that. <laughs> I think I think there's a a, a product here. Because you, you <laughs> years ago I was reading yoga journal and uh, there was an article from a guy from New York, and he came up with a routine for bathtub yoga. You know, I thought that was really interesting. So I thought, oh, I could have come out with sleeping bag yoga. Anyway, like you get in the supine firm pose, and you pull it up on your neck, and you can still breathe, and, you know, and you're in the posture, and you're warm. So this time I was underneath the entire uh, sleeping bag, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking about what Swami said, that you need to pray. You need to pray to the to master. You need to call on the master, on the guru. So, I uh, I was having this began to have this dialogue with with master, and I'm saying, okay, master Swami, Swami wants me to pray to you about Earth Song. You know, he wants me to pray to you about this mundane stuff. He wants me to bother you <laughs> about this mundane stuff. And I thought. 
So I, when I heard myself say that, you know, then it, a light went off. I thought, bother Master. You know, I was thinking, he wants me to bother him. And at the time, I mean, I had his Yogananda's picture everywhere. I did, I had a solid sadhana. I would chant every day. I'd listen to Swamiji's recordings regularly on the way to town back. A thorough diet of these teachings. And devotion. I, I, I had so much devotion for Master and Swami. But in this case, I had this unique delusion, you know, that... I would be bothering him for the for this mundane thing. See, at the time, Raja C. Janakananda hadn't come along yet, and we didn't. There was a lot of work to do for for some of us around uh, what prosperity consciousness was, bringing spiritualizing business. So that was kind of something we did, but but we I didn't tune into how to spiritualize it. And Swamiji was thinking, you need to pray to Master to bring him into this area also. So I had my own unique delusion around this. And as Master has said, we're very skillful in our delusion. And that was mine. So Swamiji saw that and uh, he, he began to work on that. So I was under the blanket and when I had that thought, I just threw it off. And I thought, Swami wants me to take these teachings and draw on Master in every area of life, including the mundane business of working at Earthsong. And that was an important lesson. It really was for me, and I don't know about you, but as we develop and grow and watch Swami's life, he brought that enthusiasm and also drawing on the Guru's guidance and grace. I mean, he was one with Master, but he brought it in, into everything. Everything he did, he exemplified the attunement with the guru and that's what he wanted us to do so as i uh attempted to do that earth song began to just shine more and more and i remember it changed when one day a person came in and and they said and we were doing all kinds of things in those days uh to beautify it try to uplift it and a person said did you add more lights and I had to stop and think if we had, but we hadn't. What they were picking up on was just the brilliant sort of bright light of those working there of the energy. And I believe it was really Swamiji's blessing and Master's blessing to, to bring that in. So one of the, the thoughts I had was why I didn't want to bother Master is that if you read one of his poems where he says, when I take the vow of silence to remain in locked with, with my beloved. In the arms of his everywhereness, I shall be busy listening to this, his symphony of creation's songs and, and beholding hidden wondrous visions. Now, did I want to interrupt that? <laughs> but he also says, yet I shall not be oblivious to you all. So it's a little bit of, you know, like I said, my own delusion, but, but Swamiji saw through it just as he sees through, he saw through all of them, and he would work with us at any time that it was right to expose it and, and, and gently, or in this case, maybe a little more forcefully, have us deal with it. And I'll close with, because if I didn't get the message, a couple of days later, there was an all-community meeting, and every, the whole community was there because Swami was leading it, and he was 
making this point to everyone in the community that we need to call on Master for his help in doing whatever we were doing. And he brought up this discussion that we had the other evening. He said, and with the challenges of their song, I was talking to Christian House the other night, and he doesn't pray. <laughs> so, I, did you ever want to feel so small? A microorganism, I sort of, I sort of shrunk in my seat, you know, and, uh, and I thought, I don't believe this, you know, not, for one thing, earlier when I was so lamenting, when I left the hermitage, I was saying, Swami thinks I don't pray. <laughs> that, that, that's what hurt me. Uh, he, not only that, he, but my, t my spiritual teacher thinks I don't pray. So then, I thought, now not only Swami thinks I don't pray, the whole community thinks I don't pray. But, you know, I thought if it was worth making the point, Hari Bol, you know, let's, let's, let's help each other in whatever way. And that's, and that's how it is in this community. We see what everybody's going through. We see how Swami's worked with them. We see how they're trying. And we all live this path together. And we learn lessons through vicariously or through the example of others. And everybody tries their best. And it's a beautiful, loving community that I believe Swamiji, through his joy and love, really infused in us all. And let's continue that legacy. Thank you. Uh, my name is Atman. I've lived here at the village for the last couple of decades. And the aspect that I wanted to talk about today was truthfulness. And in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, uh, he talks about one of the yamas is non-deceitfulness, as Swami translated it recently, or truth. And that truth is relating at its highest to everything is divine, to the bliss of God which underlies everything. And that's where Swamiji lived his life. He was able to relate to that truth and never forget that. But he also lived among us, as so to speak, and he lived down in the mundane. And examples in his life of how do you balance the truthfulness there and truthfulness in Maya and delusion. And one thing that people have mentioned a lot was his ability to relate to the highest truth in everybody. He was our teacher and guide, and he could see everybody's stuff. And he knew exactly what was going on, and he knew exactly what the truth on the Mayak level was, but he was very loath to put that out there. And what he would do was wait for an opening, where can I relate what's happening here to lift somebody up, to lift into that higher truth? And as people talked about his timing, his patience was legion to do that. Another thing, he was very, very careful that his actions and his words aligned with reality, even on this delusion level of materialism, and in very mundane ways. At uh, one point near, I think it was fairly near the end of his life, and this happened many times, people have related, but he uh, made a casual mention, oh, I need to go to town to get some things that I need. Turns out that somebody then came to him and gave him what he needed, and there was no longer a need to go to town. And he was not feeling well, and it would have been very easy to say, well, why would I go to town? I have what I need. But he said, no, I said I was going to town. I must go to town. And he, so he went to town and had a coffee or did something or ran another errand because he always wanted his old words to align with his actions, even on that very mundane level. He also wanted it on some very 
profound levels that they needed to align with each other. And especially in his later years when he had the challenges of a body that didn't always uh, support the volcano of creativity, people would often urge him to do less or to rest, but he would never, ever listen to that. One time he flew across the Atlantic after having had a bout with the flu, he wasn't feeling well after a transatlantic flight. He was supposed to give a talk in Paris uh, about Master's life and his time with the Master. And it turns out that the, people, the person who was supposed to be doing the publicity hadn't done anything. And one person showed up for the talk. And he came and the people who were with him urged him and said, you know, Swami, why don't we just rest? There's lots of other people on this tour we'll talk to. He said, no. I said I'm giving a talk about Master. I must talk about Master tonight. And so he sat down with this devotee and just had an hour conversation with him and talked to him about his life with Master. And it was just keeping that in alignment. Sometimes he would adhere to truth and even when it was a great, and to his word, even when it was a great cost to him and potentially to others. Sometimes he would even adhere to other people's conception of what truth, even when he knew that it wasn't necessarily his. And there's a prime example of what I'm trying to illustrate here. And that was in the early days of Ananda when we first bought the land with a retreat. Uh, Swamiji bought land up at the meditation retreat as a, a part of a group of people with Dick Baker, Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder. And he was set to buy 24 acres out of this undivided parcel and he was going there, they were all going to have hermitages there. When it came time for the sale to go through, they were still missing two shares of land, two 24-acre shares hadn't been committed to by anyone. And so Swami said, well, okay, I'll, I'll pay for it, I'll buy two more shares, but I'm going to start a community here because I think Master wants to start a community and this is the time and I'm going to have other friends joining me. And so there was an agreement with these other folks that he was going to come in, provide the money they needed, they closed the sale on the land, they started developing the retreat. And then two years later, Dick Baker uh, sent a message to Swami and said, what are you doing? You have all these people up there, I want you to stop until I can come back, we can't do anymore, you can't have this up here, this community, you know, you said you're going to move the community, but I don't believe you're going to move the community, and this is just unacceptable, this is supposed to be a hermitage. And Swami knew that he was in perfect alignment with what the truth of the situation had been, that he had said, if I'm taking these other two shares, I am going to have friends joining me and I'm going to create this community and I will move this community within five years. But he also sensed that there was a lot of disharmony in that and that it wasn't reaching to the highest level of divine truth, which is always harmonious. And at that point, he found the land down here at the farm and right away began moving the community back to, to here at great cost to himself. He was the only one who, he, he went out to pay the mortgage for the new land here and ended up spending a couple years away from Ananda to make that happen. But he felt, you know, even though I know what was said and I know what's truth, I'm going to honor the fact that these people thought my word wasn't good, and so I'm going to show them right away that this has to happen and I'm going to maintain harmony with this. And as it says in Patanjali's, when one's actions are in complete alignment with truth, when one's word is in complete alignment with truth, 
There's great power. There's, the words of someone of that nature have a tremendous power, and I think that's what Swamiji showed us in his life. I think as we adhere to that power, to that Dharma, we'll have great power in our lives. Is that good? So I won't keep you long. We are running a little bit late, but I wanted to just talk about living in the superconscious and how Swami did that all the time. Um, this is a story I told at a Sunday service a few months ago, but it bears repeating. I traveled, I was lucky enough in 1980 to travel with Swami to uh, Australia. And a couple of other devotees went with us, and very nice, harmonious group. And uh, he had been invited to go there by a man who I believe came and visited here at the village. And there was some conference this young man was organizing, and he invited Swami to come and be the keynote speaker for it. And so um, this whole two-and-a-half-week tour got organized and we visited virtually every major city on the east coast of Australia. Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne, up to Brisbane, up to Cairns in the uh, uh, tropical area, Atherton in the rainforest. We even went out to uh, the Great Barrier Reef for one night on Green Island. But interestingly enough, and everywhere we went, there was receptivity. People were very happy to have Swami come and visit. Some of the events were well attended. Some of them were not very well attended, and just people there. And he was touching individual lives wherever he happened to be. Uh, one group wanted to start a community, so we went out in the rain to this land and looked at it. And it was a very sweet time, and the people were very sweet. But when we finally got to Brisbane, where I believe this conference was supposed to take place, and Swami hadn't heard from this young man for a long time. And so, and I think he knew what was going on. It was just, it was just having fun. But at any rate, so the time of the conference arrived, and we went to the building, and the doors were locked. We had traveled 7,500 miles one way to go to this conference, and the doors were locked. And so we went around to the back of the building and looked and everything. But, you know, at that time, I had been here eight years, but I still was getting to know Swami in different ways. And his reaction to that was even just super conscious. He just laughed. He said, well, let's go and have lunch. And so it was just, there was no thing, I don't think he really talked about it much after that. And in fact, after that, we went to the northern part of Australia, which is in the tropical, beautiful area. But he did a workshop there, and there were six people for an all-day workshop, and I thought, oh no, you know, but he just did it. People had come, and he just talked to them all day long about the topic, probably super conscious living. But at any rate, it was just such a delightful, super conscious consciousness that he really always displayed. And for me, throughout the years, all the many, many things that have happened with Ananda, with Swami, his changing, evolving spiritual life, 
in many, many different ways, being married, not being married, focusing on education, focusing on communities, focusing on business, focusing on India, everything, the consciousness was always the same. And whenever something would come that I would think, I, I'm, I'm just not sure what to think about this, how to relate to this, and really the, the uh, inside question came, is his consciousness still the same? And I would meditate and I would think, absolutely, just even Stephen, doesn't matter what the outward uh, expression is, the consciousness is still the same. And uh, I have to say that throughout the years, we've laughed a lot with Ananda because of that, because there's not been an attachment to um, what was going on outwardly, but that it was always for our own spiritual growth, Swami's spiritual growth through founding Ananda, through everything that happened with it, through the lawsuit. We laughed a lot during the lawsuit. People wouldn't believe it, but in the most dark moments, and Davy touched on this the other night of just being in Italy and it was freezing cold and we had no money and no people were coming and, and we just laughed and just went on and, and kept the energy really happening in the right way. But all of that came back to how Swami was acting and how he was supporting all of us. And so I just wanted to close. I found this little the vow of superconscious living that Melody Wienhoff, when she was running treasures along the path, put out several years ago. And, you know, with Swami, it's like the, um, the example, the expression, all the lessons you learn, but then he gave us the way to actually do it. And so this is the vow of superconscious living that we can all take together right now. <laughs> I vow from this day forth to be true to my higher superconscious self, to be a channel of light, of love and blessing for all, to live in joy, not sorrow, in truth, not error, in victory, not failure, and in times adver of adversity, to blame no one but myself, and then instead of blame, to accept responsibility with God's help for changing myself. Life is beautiful, life is gay When I give myself away When I live to please Thee, Lord Dancing in Thy rain Let me see Thee everywhere Hear Thy melodies in the air let me feel thy strength in me, give me joy to share. Life is beautiful, life is gay, when I give myself away, when I live to please thee, Lord, dancing in thy ray. Let me see thee everywhere, hear thy melodies in Feel thy strength in me, give me joy to share. Let me feel thy strength in me, give 
Thank you.